Hey guys, this is Field of Vapor. Hey folks, this is Pete Bissardo. Hey guys, this is Ruby Roo, and you're listening to Smoke Free Radio. Hello, Vapors. Welcome to another edition of Smoke Free Radio right here on the VP Live Network. I did miss you last week. However, I did celebrate my 14th, my 14th wedding anniversary with my beautiful wife. A little bit of word of advice for all you young couples or those thinking about getting married. Marriage is tough. However, if you have true love, understanding, and compassion, but most of all, you can compromise with the one that you love, things will be fine. Things are difficult now. I can I can see how it could be difficult even for younger couples. I mean, um, it's so easy now just to turn off the light switch. But thankfully, me and my wife, we've been through some uh, downs. We've been through some ups, mostly ups. Uh, but I love her just uh, the same way that I loved her when I first met her. So happy anniversary, baby. And that's why you didn't get any smoke-free radio last week. Tonight's smoke-free radio is brought to you by THR.Ninja, Big Vapor Corporation out there. My um, guest tonight, uh, in a little bit, I'll be, be joined by Azim Chowhury. He is a specialist in the domestic and foreign corporations in matters of the FDA and international regulatory compliance. Uh, he has also developed expertise in tobacco and e-vapor product regulation relating to the implementation of the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. Uh, and he's also spearheaded the FDA tobacco and electronic cigarette practice at his firm, Keller & Heckman. The phone lines will be open, 347 308-8329, press 1. Uh, you can use his knowledge and expertise tonight. You're going to have about an hour, hour and a half to get your questions in for Azim, a brilliant mind. A little bit later on, I will be joined by Kevin Skipper. We're going to take a little bit uh, uh, a state approach, a couple of things that uh, I need to turn your attention to, especially in Maryland and, of course, Pennsylvania. Um, just one little thing that I want to get in here before I bring Azim on 
we we really have to take a good look at at the marketing aspect. And Mitch Zeller had some comments at the NATO uh, conference in Las Vegas last week, where he did talk about. You know, I do truly believe, think that Mitch knows that electronic cigarettes are is, is a less harmful alternative to combustible tobacco, and I do believe that the FDA, as I said in my previous show, knows that as well too. But he keeps bringing up one thing, and it's the marketing to kids, the flavor aspect. In my opinion, and I will take Azim's opinion as well when he's joining us here in a little bit. But in my opinion, the flavor aspect, the marketing to kids aspect, is probably the toughest hurdle for us to overcome as an industry. So I advise at least the companies that are out there, especially those that have taken that marketing aspect of really enticing their products. Um, adults enjoy flavors. We all know that. I mean, I'm 44 years old. I'm vaping, you know, flavored e-liquid myself. As, you know, 70% of the community out there based on the uh, study that was done by 19,000 vapors by Dr. Fasalinos that was published a couple years ago. Um, however... However, there's a fine line in your marketing and advertising strategy. And there's one thing that I want to get through is that advertising that specifically is targeting children should not be used in conjunction with promoting electronic cigarette e-liquid. It's indefensible. Nothing against flavors again. Nothing against even flavors that are marketed to kids like Fruit Loops, uh, certain cereals that are out there, a certain candy that's out there. We love it just as much as kids do. In fact, it kind of triggers something, I think, into vapors as well, too, bringing them back to their childhood. Even at vapes, they probably taste even better. You don't, you don't have all the guilty calories that go with it as well, too. However, again, the marketing that's actually targeting to children is a huge obstacle, and it's something that is not defensible by the advocates, the attorneys, and everybody that's going to go up there and fight uh, at the FDA. Uh, I saw this PR um, this week that just came across my wire. This is a company called Palm Beach Vapors. I'm not quite sure. They made out, I mean, in this PR you know, statement that they put out, it makes it seem like they're huge. Personally, I've never heard of them before. But Palm Beach Vapors puts out this PR that says that uh, they are revolutionizing the e-liquid industry and um, and they're innovating, and by uh, by innovating, they created a revolutionary vaping system that's going to transform the entire industry status quo by eliminating propylene glycol. <laughs> they're eliminating PG. Um, uh, in fact, the CEO said that uh, the presence of PG in e-liquid has always been a controversial issue in the rapidly expanding vape industry. PG is the bad guy in E6. Every negative study on E6 ties back to propylene glycol. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm, so, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to just go off on a rant right in the beginning of the show, but you know, every scientist that I have talked to that supports electronic cigarettes has told me if you were to vape PG in nicotine till it came out of your ears, till it came out of your eyeballs for the rest of your life. 99.99999% nothing will happen to you. The two safest ingredients probably in electronic cigarettes are PG and nicotine. Those are the two safest ingredients in electronic cigarettes. And this guy puts out a PR statement that he's removing PG. <laughs> he's going to remove PG from a, That's a revolutionary all you do is doing a high VG jizz, bro. I mean, seriously, what is revolutionary about that? And forget about the fact that you're not innovating anything 
uh, on your failed franchising, uh, you know, expansion? Because I've never heard of Palm Beach Vapor, even though it says down here that they're the leader and they have franchises in all these states. I've never even heard of Palm Beach Vapors. You're giving a bad name to the industry. You're giving a bad name to the product that you're trying to sell to your customers. Why would you falsely advertise? You're definitely not a qualified scientist. But why in the hell would you make a PR statement that you're removing PG from your e-liquids and you're innovating? All you're doing is putting this industry back five years again. Shut the fuck up. Please, Palm Beach Vapors, just eliminate yourself. Instead of just PG, eliminate yourself from the industry. Can you do that for me? I certainly would appreciate it. All right, let me go ahead and bring on my guest. He is waiting patiently. He doesn't have a lot of time, so I want to make sure I get him on here to answer all these questions. Of course, from the Keller and Heckman firm, specializing in, in FDA matters. Uh, not only here in the United States, I get to see I got to see Azim in China as well. Uh, joining us via Skype is Mr. Azim Chowhury. Azim, how you doing? Hello, good evening. How are you? Uh, doing great. You sound pretty good. I hope everybody can hear you in the chat. Of course, uh, 347-308-8329. Press 1 if you have any questions for Azim during tonight's broadcast. Briefly, Azim, uh, just a little bit of history on you and how you, you got into this FDA attorney-type role that we've been seeing you here in the industry over the last couple of years. Sure. I've been practicing law now for just over eight years, almost nine years, and I've been focusing on food and drug law for most of that time. Um, it was about five or six years ago when I sort of started getting into the whole e-cigarette phenomenon and you know was one of the early movers in this industry on the legal side of things right. and have been involved you know pretty much since then and have watched the industry grow tremendously in that time and have you know been fortunate enough to get to know folks like yourself yeah, and, and it's interesting. We had you on an episode on one of the first episodes of the Vape Team a couple of years ago, and this kind of seems like it was 100 years ago, really, because vaping yeah. is just it's, it's moving so fast. But I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of seeing you in, in many of these events, and I've watched a lot of your presentations. In fact, on the last episode of Smoke Free Radio that I did, I kind of gave a timeline on how we got to the point now where we're out with the FDA. And I used a lot of the presentation that you did in Washington, which was fantastic, by the way. Thank so you. I've kind of caught the, the listeners up to how we have gotten to the point now that the FDA is going to regulate e-cigs under the, 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 the tobacco control uh, and under, you know, the, basically regulating this tobacco. Uh, the, there's, right. Where I want to start with you is, uh, where are we at right now with the FDA? As, as we, we, we filled our comments in uh, during the summer, we submitted right. our comments, and then the FDA is looking, by law, they have to look at all those comments. What are we at right now with the FDA? Where, what are we waiting on? Well, they have indicated, they have stated that they expect to have the final rule published or you know promulgated by the end of June. Now, take that with a grain of salt sure. because there isn't really, you know, there's no repercussion for them to not meet their deadline. And they have certainly um, extended their own deadlines before. They even did it when, when the, with the proposed rule. You know, it took two or three years uh, longer than we thought originally for the proposed version of the rule, which came out finally last April, to get published. So, what where we are right now in the in the what's called the notice and rulemaking notice and comment rulemaking process is, FDA has received the comments as you noted, mm -hmm. over 135,000 of them, um, not all of them from the e-cig industry, you know, because the deeming rule covers you know other tobacco products like cigars and shisha, et cetera but a good number of them from the vaping community. 
Um, FDA is now charged with reviewing those comments, and they should be in the process of finalizing the rule, um, hopefully taking into account and consideration the many comments that were submitted um, you know, on behalf of this industry. So what the next step is, is once they finalize their rule in their, ver in their eyes, they would submit that version to the Office of Management and Budget at the White House, which is sort of the, um, the division of, of the White House that's in charge of ensuring the, uh, or, or, or regulating the economic impact, the potential impact of any new regulations. Right. So, so, so before you continue, just to sure. expand a little bit on the OMB, because it's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people think that the OMB oversees the FDA, and that's not particularly true, correct? Right. They don't oversee the FDA. They, they, they have a different mandate. And the FDA's mandate is, is public health and public safety. Mm -hmm. And OMB is not going to really get involved on that side of things. What they will say is, you know, what they put the burden on FDA to prove, to provide the evidence that their regulations uh, are meeting the threshold that, um, that, that they're not overly burdensome on small businesses, on the economy in general, um, that, you know, if, they, if FDA is going to put out a rule that's going to end up hurting the, the economy and hurting companies, then they have to show, they have to prove that that's truly um, appropriate for the public health. And, and so they're sort of the watchdog in that regard. Right. So, And there's been a lot of companies and a lot of organizations. I know AIMSA has met with the OMB. So have other companies and other advocacy, uh, whether they're for or non for or nonprofit groups, have met with the OMB directly, uh, separately from the FDA, because they have to let them know as well, uh, depending on what they represent, what the financial impact of these deeming regulations will have. Right. Okay. That is true. So now, and, and speaking of the comments, the, there is another open comment uh, period going on now that I've heard you encourage a lot of people to go and participate, correct? Yes. Yes, so absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this open comment period. What exactly are they looking for and what is the deadline on that? Sure. So since, since the August deadline closed for the deeming regulation comments, FDA has hosted uh, now it's going to be their third public workshop focusing on different scientific and public health issues related to e-cigarettes. Now, it's a bit interesting that they're doing this because they've said that they're hosting these workshops, but, you know, they're still in the process of writing their rule. Mm -hmm. So to me, it tends, you know, it, it seems to indicate that it's a good thing. You know, they're, they're yeah. trying to learn about these products, and, and, and I think the companies in this industry should absolutely participate in submitting comments um, you know, on the questions that they're posing on the science and safety issues. So, you know, it's unrelated to deeming. So, you, you know, you, you don't want to talk about things about, you know, that relate to the deeming, like the grandfather date right, and right. pre-market. You want to talk about the questions that they've outlined in those public workshops, focusing, for example, on e-liquid safety. Uh, the comment period to me, and, and I know I know you're not a vapor, but I know you've become friends with a lot of vapors and a lot of people in the industry. And I know you're a common sense guy as well too. You're an attorney. You know, uh, you know whether these comments will be effective or not. And, and I know, like me, you're a little bit disappointed on the you know the first the deeming comment uh, period that got so mm. it didn't really get that many comments, especially from the vapor industry. Yeah, you know, I I was hoping, I know a lot of people were hoping that we would have seen, you know, like half a million vapors, just, you know, people, consumers, yeah. not not affiliated with the industry, 
submitting comments about how they were able to quit smoking and how vaping has improved their lives and how they the flavors have helped in that respect. And unfortunately, we didn't quite get, you know, enough of those, in my opinion. Do you think that uh, they matter? Do you, I mean, this is a question that, you know, I mean, it, you know, I, I try to be fair and balanced, and and I see you know you know your 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 average vapor, and when they come up to me, they say, "Well, the FDA doesn't care. The FDA is not going to read this." You know, do, do you really think that it does matter, or is it more of a volume kind of thing, or is it a substance kind of thing? Well, I think the volume in that respect certainly matters, um, because you know you see a lot of evidence come the other way, where people say, "Oh, these products aren't helping people quit smoking." You know, and obviously until and FDA is conducting their own studies on how these products are being used and whether people are actually using them for, you know, to, to transition away from smoking. But absolutely, I think it would have been great if we had, you know, more people submit comments saying that, um, you know, how, how it affected them personally. I think you can't ignore that. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is at this point. You can't go back and, and change, you know, what happened. I, I, there were a lot of good comments. You know, I don't yeah. want to take away from the fact that a lot of good, um, you know, people from the industry, uh, vapors, uh, as well as trade associations like AIMSA, Safada, um, submitted really good comments, CASA as well. So, I mean, I don't want to take away from, from the good comments that were submitted, but it's unfortunate we didn't get more individual uh, consumers uh, participating. I was too. I was too. And I think that trying to reach the people with a brick-and-mortar uh, store explosion the last couple of years has been very, very difficult. I just don't see the brick-and-mortar stores spending as much time educating their consumers. When we were online only, it was a little bit easier to organize because you had to buy your, your stuff online. So if somebody had something in their email list or on their website, it was easy for the community to come together. But now with the brick and mortar stores, I think that we have a million vapors that probably don't even know that the FDA is going to regulate them as tobacco, which is it's unfortunate, <laughs> but it is the reality. you know. And if anything that I could suggest moving ahead this year is trying to get the brick and mortar stores a little bit more organized and a little bit more educate to educate their employees, their managers, and ultimately the consumers that come in buy their products. That's just a little side note. Um, all right, moving along, there, there's one thing that I noticed uh, uh, before we get to some specifics is the grandfather date, and you brought it up here just a few minutes ago, uh, where the grandfather date is set at, at February 15th, 2007, uh, mm-hmm. which we all know this is it's completely unfair for multiple reasons. But in, in part of your, your presentation, you said that April 25th, 2011, is the date that the e-cigarette industry was put on the first notice that it would be subject under the Tobacco Control Act. And that date would probably make more sense for it to be the grandfather date than the 2007. Expand a little bit on why that 2007 date was set and how do you feel about moving ahead, whether that date will be changed or not. Or And, and if it is, is, is it really going to change anything as far as the deeming regs? Sure. So, as you mentioned, February 15, 2007. That's the rather arbitrary date, but it's the most important date in the law because um, that sets the grandfather date. So any product that falls under the meaning of a tobacco product under the federal law that was on the market on that day or as of that day is grandfathered, Mm -hmm. meaning they don't have to submit any sort of pre-market authorization for those products or pre-market applications for those products. That's why you have cigarettes that are on the market, smokeless tobacco, roll your own tobacco, you know, all these products that have, you know, remained on the market since that time, um, a lot of them did not have to go through any sort of pre-market authorization because they are grandfathered. Mm-hmm. So the reason that date, it, you know, comes about is because my understanding is that was the 
the date that the first bill that eventually became the Tobacco Control Act was introduced into Congress. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that just happens to be the date. You know, there's no scientific reason for it. But FDA decided that from that point forward, or the Congress decided from that point forward, they wanted to ensure that tobacco products did not get any more harmful than they already were. That's really the goal, that's the, the purpose of the grandfathering you know, uh, products at all. It's, they don't want to make. They want to make sure products don't get more harmful over time. Right. Um, now, obviously, for a lot of reasons, that doesn't make sense for e-cigarettes. You know, they, these products were not really on the market um, in 2007, mm-hmm. and so the argument is that Congress didn't intend that original date to apply to this industry. You know, number one, it didn't exist in the U.S. Right. right. You know, they were just starting to come into the country from China, you know, the SIGA-like models mm-hmm. at that time. And and so, you know, I don't want to go into the, the, the long history of what happened sure. after 2007, but ultimately, you know, there was a, uh, a, a court case, a Cetera decision, where the, the, the court held that uh, if a e-cigarette contains nicotine derived from tobacco and is marketed for recreational use and not for any quote-unquote therapeutic benefit, then it's a tobacco product under the law. Mm-hmm. But FDA has to deem them to be regulated tobacco products through a regulation, which was the deeming regulation. Mm-hmm. So FDA fought that, all fought that decision from the court because at the time, FDA wanted to regulate e-cigarettes as nicotine delivery devices, as drug, right. as drug delivery devices, mm-hmm. which would have been bad because that would have prevented the industry from existing in the first place because Correct. you can't sell a drug or a drug delivery device mm-hmm. without getting FDA pre-market drug approval, which is also a very difficult task. Yeah. So at the time, that's what FDA was trying to do. Um, they lost that case. They decided not to appeal it to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the date that they decided not to do that was April 25th, 2011. And on that day, they published a letter on their website, which you can still find, which um, says that we agree, you know, we're not going to further appeal this decision, and we're going to regulate e-cigarettes under the deeming rule whenever it comes out. Right. Uh, but it took exactly three years for them to do that um, after that date. So, so I throw that out there as, you know, 2011, you know, obviously the, the best thing that FDA could do for the industry um, would be to create a grandfather date that would capture the existing market as of today. So, so whenever the deeming regulations come into effect, that would be the, the date. That would make absolute sense to everybody, right? right? In my opinion. And I know a number of <laughs> sure. commenters, you know, to the deeming regs suggested that date that, you know, whenever it comes out. So if, if it comes out in June or, or December or next year, that that date should, you know, should be the effective grandfather date for the industry. So anything on the market today up until that date would be grandfathered and it would not have to go through pre-market authorization. Right. Um, if that, if they choose not to use that date, then, well, then they can pull back a little bit and they can go back to maybe, maybe the date the, the rule was proposed, April 2014. That's another option. That also puts the, put the industry on notice. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, if you really want to go to the very beginning, the first time the FDA put the industry on notice, the e-cig industry on notice that they were going to come after you guys as tobacco products, then my opinion that would be um, the earliest date would be April 2011, which is not ideal, again, because there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of development since 
2011, right? Right. Um, but it would allow at least early models, early, you know, the Sigil likes would be captured. The, the early open systems would probably be captured, yeah. um, which would be good because it opens up the door then for substantial equivalence, which is, which is one of the pre-market pathways right. that you can use to compare to a grandfathered product, you know, a new product. So, so I can talk about that. Yeah, we're, we're going to get that into a little bit. I've got it all kind of laid down here to get to that point. If we're going to talk a little bit, just briefly again about this grandfather date clause. Now, Number one, we know that there, there's been a letter that's been sent by some senators to change this grandfather clause. We know that's been asked for in the deeming regulations as well. You know, but also we've also heard Mitch Zeller saying that, listen, this is a date that was set by Congress, and it's something that we can't change. It's really not up to the FDA to change the, the date. Is that true? Well, FDA took a sort of strange position in, in their deeming rule. They, they took the position that they did not – they do not have the legal authority to change the grandfather date because it's written in the statute, mm-hmm. and which is odd because they actually requested people to comment on whether they thought whether you know people people to comment on whether they could change the yeah. grandfather date. Right. So they've sort of you know clearly there's a question in their mind about whether that's legally you know possible for them to change the date. My opinion, and we sort of detailed this in a number of comments submitted on behalf of our clients, but uh, my opinion is that absolutely there is legal precedent and legal authority for FDA to use a different date than the 2007 date, even though that was written in the statute. You know, something called FDA's enforcement discretion, and um, which means that they can choose to enforce the act in a way that provides flexibility and makes common sense, makes sense. Right. And for the reasons I just noted about putting the industry on notice and and the fact that these products weren't even on the market in 2007, um, there's there's lots of uh, you know reasons and 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 ways the FDA can can come up with a good reason to to use a new date other than 2007. Sure. Three four seven three zero eight eight three two nine. Press one if you have any questions for Azim. You can tweet me at vaping greek hashtag smoke free radio. Um, one more thing here on this date, and you're an attorney, so I'm going to give you a legal question. Do we have legal recourse on changing that date? Do we have an option of suing to change that date, whether it's pre or after the deeming regulations, or which would which would it entail for us? Would it be after the deeming regulations to have a case to actually sue to change that date? That's certainly a possibility. Um, I think you would have to wait until after the rule becomes final mm-hmm. because we've submitted comments um, arguing that they should change the date. If they if they don't change the date, that could certainly be one of the bases for a lawsuit. I'm sure there will be many bases, but that should certainly be one is that FDA is um, you know inappropriately applying the 2007 grandfather date. Um, and the fact that we submitted comments, that, com- that people and industry representatives submitted comments to, age- to, to the FDA – arguing that they should change the date um, is a good thing because it allows us now to, um, if a judge were to eventually look at that issue, we could then point to the fact that we put the agency on notice through our comments that uh, they should change the date, and yet they did not do so. So it's basically going to be used as evidence in court if we get to that point that, hey, look how many people asked for this, even industry and, and, and advocate, advocacy groups and so forth, and, and even consumers, yet you chose to ignore it in your final dealing with regulations. Right. So, I my, yes, I think that would be certainly one way. Um, litigation is definitely something that could ultimately delay 
the effective date of the deeming regulation, and this might be one of the reasons. Let me take a call right here. Azim, real quick. 408, you're on the air with Smoke Free Radio. Hi, Dimitri. This is uh, Tom Baker calling you. Hey. hey uh, I got a couple questions. How are you? Yeah. I'm glad you're back. Thanks, man. A uh, uh, couple questions. Uh, if the grandfather date is changed, uh, what would that what would that look like? Uh, as far as, I mean, wouldn't you have to have e-liquids that have somehow been defined and documented prior to the, uh, the grandfather date. So the question is, the grandfather date's changed. What what, the, what does that mean for e-liquids that are were, were out before, and how do they get their, you know, what happens after that? And then the second question is, there's a lot of people that have talked about lawsuits, and you just talked about one, uh, which is possibly the sue on the grandfather date itself. What other legal lawsuits are, are out there that would be effective against the FDA. Good, 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 uh, good questions. I don't know what they could be. I got you, Tom. The second part... Hey, the, you put me back on hold? Yes, I will. The, the second question, uh, the second part of your question, I'm, I'm, I will get to it uh, in a little bit with, with Azim. But the first part of the question was, Azim, you know, we know the devices. We know the sta- kind of the standard stuff that was on the market before. How do we establish a pre-market, well, uh, I shouldn't say pre-market, but pre-father date as far as the e-liquids are concerned? Would that have to go based on a company's history or how long they've been in business, how long they've been producing e-liquid? Uh, how would that grandfather date take into consideration e-liquid? So the e-liquid, it would be considered essentially a tobacco product if it contains nicotine, um, nicotine derived from tobacco. Mm-hmm. So just like any other tobacco product, the way that you establish that your particular product was on was grandfathered is by demonstrating that you have, you know, receipts, manufacturing documentation, invoices, uh, agreements, you know, basically really any evidence to show that your particular product was on the market on the grandfather date. So if they use if they use April 2011 as the grandfather date, and you know you had products that were on the market at that time, mm-hmm. it's a product-specific question. So you have to go back through your files, through your records, and and find documentation, some sort of evidence showing that you had put that product on the market, that you were selling it, that it was commercially available right. to consumers. So basically, it would be the valid companies that have been paying taxes and have <laughs> been documenting everything they've been doing for the last four or five years. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, good question, by the way, by, by Tom. Uh, all right, let's 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 continue a little bit because I know you're a little bit pressed on time. And I want to make sure that we get all the information and, and, and moving ahead from this grandfather date. Now, we know that when the, when the, 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 the deeming regulations were announced, what, what the FDA intended to do, uh, a lot of people read those those FDA regulations, didn't really grasp the concept of them, I mean, including in there, of course, uh, you know, ban on use sales, which I think we all can agree, vending machine sales, you know, uh, sampling, or you can't say that this will help you quit smoking, all that I can kind of really deal with. And I think a lot of people took that gist of the FDA regulations that, oh, these are good things. However, uh, they, they missed the most important part of the deeming regulations, and of course, that is the path to pre-market application. So in, in, in some terms that, that most of the people can understand, uh, we have only two ways after the deeming regulations based on what we have existing to actually get a product on the market as it stands right now. And that is the biggest hurdle, I think, and it's something that I really want to drive home with all these people that are saying, 
Uh, you know, I got an ISO lab. I'm ready to go for the FDA regulations. I, oh, I'm, I'm set up. I, whenever the FDA regulations are going to come, I'm, I'm ready to go. What, what was your response to, to that part of the industry? And as well, explain a little bit of the two paths to, to, to the market. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, I do think there was a lot of misunderstanding about uh, the, the deeming regulation around that whole concept of pre-market. Because on, on its face, it sounds like it makes sense. You know, oh, we just have to submit some sort of application to FDA for our products. Right. But it goes way beyond that. I mean, the, like you said, there's only really one pathway. If the FDA doesn't change the grandfather right. day, which uh, they probably won't. I mean, my, what I'm hearing the grape, from the grapevine is that they won't change the grandfather date. Again, we can possibly sue. That's another issue. But let's just, let's just say that they don't change the grandfather date. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case... There were, to my knowledge, no e-liquids in the refillable variety that were on the market in 2007. So the only path to remain on the market is to submit what's called a pre-market tobacco application, Mm -hmm. a PMTA. Now that, um, I can send more information to anyone who's looking for information, but that that is not like a permit or a license or some sort of relatively simple form. It is a comprehensive, clinical-based report um, application similar or on par with a new drug application that pharmaceutical companies have to submit to get new drugs on the market. That's the closest analogy yeah. I, can, I can give. So eventually, with the, just to very quickly, I know you want to probably talk about um, the details of that, but... What the deeming regulation we, we, we don't have to be very detailed, but what, what I, I really want people to understand is that shit's not that easy. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't that easy. Even the path right. to pre-market application is, is extremely costly and, and a difficult par- process. Right. I mean, it's, it's going to be costly. I mean, it's, it's, it, they're estimating the millions of dollars per product per mm-hmm. application um, to develop the data that you need to support uh, the standard and the standard is and this is important to 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 get a, a, a product through the PMTA process. Right now, the way the, the 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 draft rule is written, you have to demonstrate that your product is appropriate for the protection of the public health. Right. This very vague, convoluted sort of standard of public health, which is a bit undefined in the statute, but it requires considering how the product will impact consumers that are non-users. You know, how will the availability of your e-liquid or your e-cigarette, how will that, um, how will its availability impact non-users? Will it cause more people to start smoking? Will it result in a gateway? Yeah. Will it result in dual use? Will it prevent people who otherwise would have quit smoking altogether from quitting? Yeah. Um, uh, so that's, in my opinion, it's almost impossible for any one individual company to develop that Type of data to support that, and following what happened with Snus as well too. I mean, you're gonna see that this is not this is not an easy process, and definitely there's not companies out there that have gathered that kind of a data to submit with an application because of this FDA that this one size fits all approach and what they're trying to do. And, and all everything that's on the books right now, even for that path to pre market application, was written before electronic cigarettes existed. So nothing really fits the category, even if we try to manipulate it to apply our products to it. Right. I find it extremely difficult. I find it nearly impossible that more than one or two products would be allowed on the market, and we all know who's going to own those products. Right, exactly. 
I will give a little bit of a ray of hope here. Um, recently, um, just past it's April and I think initially back in October of last year, um, on a few occasions, Mitch Zeller has stated that, and he may have stated this at, stated this at, the, at the NATO conference that you went to, but he stated that the CTPs, the Center for Tobacco Products, is exploring options for uh, reduced data sets. So, you know, perhaps requiring less data and and information for products that are less harmful than combustible right. cigarettes. I have I've, I have his actual statement right here where he says oh, exploring options for an expedited pre-market review policy based on principle of relative toxicity and risk. Now, this, okay, this exploration by the FDA, though, is that going to be based on current research that the FDA is doing right now? Because I know they are doing research right now. I'm not quite sure who they're working with that research. And if I, if my hunch is correct, we're really screwed. But is that going is, is that exploration going to be based on research that they're doing or, or data and science that maybe the industry will be able to provide? Well, it's probably going to be a little bit of both. I mean, they are definitely doing their own research. Um, they're definitely doing their own studies right now. Um, and I, I know industry submitted data as part of the deeming red comments. That's another reason why it's so important if you're an industry, if you're in the industry to submit information on your on the safety of your products to in a current comment period. So the FDA has that to to look at as well. But generally the it's a positive because if they are basing it on this concept of relative risk, then what 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 they're saying is that, you know, maybe the full what's required today in the in the in their guidance for a PMCA would only apply to the most harmful products, mm-hmm. um, like combustible cigarettes or products that, that contain actual tobacco. Um, and what we're hoping is that they tailor the requirements and they publish guidance that say, okay, well, if you're if you're not combusting tobacco and you're only and you're only vaporizing a nicotine-containing solution, then we're going to say that here are the requirements that apply to your products, which are going to be hopefully less burdensome than you know, what's already on the books. So I can't, it's impossible for me or anyone to know what exactly that's going to look like, but it's at least hopeful that they've heard some of what we've been pushing for the last three, four years. And, um, in terms of developing appropriate product based regulations, but again, it remains to be seen what happens. You know, I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. I think, I think, I think yeah, maybe it gets you a little a glimpse of, of hope, However, we know how the FDA works, and we know who's in the bed with them, and we know we know which companies might be influencing that. Even the data that they might be collecting that is going to show this might be created based on a few companies that are going to be able to afford and 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 supply the the necessary information to get to that path to uh, that accelerated path to pre market application. I'm not very hopeful, but then again, I'm one of these guys that comes on the radio every week and says we're fucked. But I'm just doing it to, to raise attention to Zim. I'm not I'm not I'm doing it for people to wake up and get involved. And I think we're yeah. lacking on that no, a I lot. I completely agree. I mean, I, I agree. You know. Know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it was remarkable. Even in the deeming regulation, in the in the lengthy preamble, they they you know talked about how e-cigarettes. Some people think e-cigarettes are less harmful than cigarettes, and I'm like, really? Some people? Isn't it right. pretty obvious? Right. Right. <laughs> Isn't there plenty of data? But you know, they always couched it in a way that would um, seem to uh, you know 
make it make it sound like the science was not yet clear. Right. And I and I completely think that there needs to be more data. Absolutely, sure. but. Um, anyway, I think your point is is, is yeah. Well because you know the, the thing that I see with the FDA is there's no evidence that that people are quitting smoking with this, and there's no evidence for this, and there's no evidence for that. I mean, there's there's ample of evidence out there. I mean, forget about the studies, forget you know, forget about all the scientific work that has been done by the industry. And there's a lot of it out there. You know, I was really surprised talking to Dr. F at China how much science we do have out there. Not from Dr. F alone, but plenty of scientists around the world that have done good positive stories on electronic cigarettes and have published really good reviews. The problem that I have with it is that just from common sense, we have eight, 9,000 vape shops, which I think it's grossly underestimated in the United States. I think it's way more than that. But even if you have you know documented eight, 9,000 vape shops, who the hell are these people selling it to? If this product does not help put, quit smoking, you know who are these people selling? They can't be dual using and spending all this money at the vape shop. You know, this is common sense, and I think this is where the OMB might be able to help and say, hey, look, there is an industry that's been spurted out of this. It's a three, four billion dollar industry. It is a viable. People are quitting smoking, and I hope they take that in consideration more than the science, because we know that the science, especially from their side, will be flawed. Uh, expanding a little bit uh, on the pre-market application and, and the substantial equivalency. As you said, substantial equivalency does not make any sense because there's nothing on the market right now that was used back in 2007. Even the beginner's kits that they had back there, back then, were cartridges that were pre-filled. There was no open vapor. And you know and I know that without open vapor, this industry is dead. And I, and I think on, that's something that we all can agree <coughs> with. Uh, why, when, when it comes to the FDA in this in this pre-market application, again, from a legal standpoint, and I know you can't talk into detail a lot about this, and I wouldn't want you to, but again, from a legal standpoint, uh, when we do have that many companies, now we have a lot of associations that are set up legally as like SFADA and AIMSA and other associations out there that do have legal teams ready to go. Does the FDA... Is the FDA aware that they're going to face that many legal challenges when they drop these deeming regulations, which I anticipate to be just as bad as the proposed? But you know, that's just my that's just my personal opinion. Not I'm not you know expert by any means. But do, are they aware of the legal you know battle that they're going to have ahead of, ahead of them, especially at the point now where the industry is at? Because we're not that tiny anymore. I I think they're very aware. I think they're going to be very careful in how they. Um, support whatever they come out with in the final mm-hmm. rule um, because they know that if they don't support it that they would they're going to face a battle in court um, you know as the agency that's in charge of developing these regulations they do get the benefit of the doubt from the court uh, the, the the standard that they would have to sh- you know for, for, for us if we were if there were a lawsuit in the future over the final rule, we would really have to show the industry would have to show that whatever we're claiming is inappropriate um, was arbitrary and capricious. You know yeah. that the agency went above and beyond and in to doing something wrong. Yeah. So because the, a judge is going to say, you know, I'm not a scientist. Right. Um, this is FDA's, and if they're telling me this stuff is bad for you, then you know that's their prerogative. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be very careful to, uh, you know. Um, support their final rule but you know once it comes out um to answer the one of the, the caller's second question you know once it comes once a rule comes out we'll be able to quickly determine what the bases are for any potential lawsuits the fda you've worked with them in the past they have unlimited budget they have unlimited attorneys to their to their uh disposal obviously um it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough fight i do believe that we do have some my hope is in the legal system 
Uh, I know that sounds, you know, a little bit absurd, but my hope is there because I do believe that in a court system, if we take the science of what's available there, we do have a, a strong chance. Um, you, you agree. I agree that there should be, a, a, you know, there should be some regulation that's reasonable uh, that's going to be proposed for the safety of this product. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff in this industry that that you have seen that I have seen that we don't agree with, and some of that has to come to a stop. But how realistic is it that the FDA can come up with uh, with with some form of regulation uh, how do you think they're going to approach that of, of you know the, the marketing to kids i think is going to be the biggest hurdle and i talked about it uh when i started the show that is one thing that mitch zeller keeps bringing up it's something that that's clearly indefensible especially with some of these companies and some of their marketing and and their their you've seen them at meets you've been there you've seen their marketing on on websites and so forth and so forth how do you think they're going to approach that aspect of regulating this product well, that's going to be the toughest uh, hurdle for FDA and for the industry both because, um, you know, it, we're, the industry is sort of stuck in a bind, right? Because you can't truthfully say right now that your products are less harmful than cigarettes right? because that's, an, that's a, either a modified risk claim, which is unauthorized, or a potential drug claim, which you can't make mm-hmm. without FDA approval. And so – in the absence of being able to truthfully market your products for what they are, I think you end up seeing companies resort to using, you know, sex appeal or fancy mm-hmm. colors or 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 names that might be inappropriate or attractive to kids. Yeah. And so you get sort of you're almost in a way forcing companies to, you know, who want to distinguish themselves from their competitors and sell products. And, and in some ways, they, they can't market the truth, so they have to sort of market using other methods which, you know, are deemed to be, you know, targeting kids or inappropriate. So the fact that you can't say these things truthfully puts the industry in a bind. So I just want yeah. to put that out yeah, there as yeah, yeah, yeah. something that, you know, is just indicative of, of where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there are constitutional questions, first uh, commercial free speech rights that, the, that we have in this country that you're allowed to, to market um, products and, and uh, the way that you, you, within a certain bounds of, of, of limitations. Um, but the biggest concern that he has is the use of these products by kids. And, you know, they're going to hype the data that they see where, where, they, where we're seeing the adolescent vaping rate um, increasing. You know, uh, they're going to hype that up as much as they can, sure. even, even if it's resulting in fewer smokers. Um, as a reason to regulate these products and the advertising of these products. When, they, when, when Congress gave the FDA the right to do this, they also gave them the, the right to regulate these products, whatever they deem to be tobacco products, as they seem fit. That is, uh, it's, it's extremely broad to me. And, and, and what my, my, my guess here is that if they do see that e-cigs are less harmful, if they do see that they have a potential, then they can always turn around and say, hey, listen, you know, these flavors, uh, you know, watermelon and, and cotton candy, they're marketing to kids, and for the be- for the best of the public health is that we eliminate them. And that's something that it's going to be really hard to defend, I think, from a tobacco standpoint, because we are falling under that CTP. We are being deemed tobacco. And the way that the Congress has given this intent to the FDA, it's going to be extremely hard for us to overcome. I agree. And I think it's so important, especially during this current common period, if you're an e-liquid company and you make flavors, 
to submit comments about the benefits that you're seeing from the use of flavors. Because it's almost, you know, at this point, it's almost become like if you sell flavors, even if you're not doing any other type of marketing, you're automatically targeting kids because, like you said, only kids like flavors, not adults. But what we're seeing on the ground is that the people who are able to quit tobacco completely generally seem to be the open system users who are enjoying the variety of flavors. And once they start vaping flavors, they have no desire to smoke. Yeah. Um, to, the, to the extent that you can submit comments to FDA on that, on that particular issue, I think is critical. Uh, you know, to, to show how yeah. flavors have helped you personally or how flavors, uh, if you're a vape shop owner, how you're seeing people come in and, and stop smoking because they're, they're vaping flavors, whatever you can do. But to get that point across, I think is critical. I, 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 totally, I totally agree with you. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard, though, because it's, it's hard to get people to, to do anything uh, these days <laughs> when it comes to, to advocacy and, and protecting their rights. Uh, you know, on the last episode, I talked a little bit about, uh, you know, I saw Ron Tolley's presentation where he talked about that the there's other agencies out there that are regulating e-cigs right now, not the FDA. And I think he counted like 12 or 13, including the FDC and including, you know, these organic claims and other claims that these companies are doing. Do you think, you know, and this is, again, a legal question, do you think that we're going to see a lot more enforcement from those bodies of government before we see something from the FDA? Uh, I mean, we're seeing some letters being sent to the to FEMA, which is the, the flavoring companies. We're seeing some question, uh, some letters being sent out to some companies that are making claims about FDA-approved labs, although their e-liquid is made in an FDA-approved lab, and so forth and so forth. So we're seeing a little bit more movement. Uh, do you think we're going to see a lot more of that this year in an, in an attempt to maybe, you know, maybe thin out a little bit the industry? I think you might. I think we, we definitely might see some more enforcement uh, coming from not just FDA, but the other agencies. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned the, the the letters, the warning letters that FDA sent out to uh, I think it was three um, e-liquid manufacturers uh-huh. for inappropriately stating that their products were FDA certified or made right. FDA certified labs. I just want to quickly talk about that. Sure. Um, that's interesting because it's interesting that FDA did that and they waited until now to do that because. You know, for the most part, we've heard FDA say, you know, until these products are deemed, until the deeming regulation becomes final, Mm -hmm. that they don't have authority over these products, that they're not regulated by the FDA. That's not entirely true. That's been sort of the perception because they haven't, the FDA hasn't been sending out enforcement actions um, against e-cigarette companies um, for the most part. Yeah. But the reason FDA was able to do that is because separate from the Tobacco Control Act in Chapter 9 of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is where most of the laws are written uh, on the Tobacco Act, there's a separate section in this, uh, Chapter 3, which broadly applies to all tobacco products in general, that says you cannot make any claims, and I'm paraphrasing this, mm-hmm. um, to, to, that would indicate that your tobacco product has been approved by FDA or has been authorized by FDA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so based on that broad use of tobacco product, FDA decided they could send those warning letters to those companies who were, I guess, inappropriately saying that they were using FDA-approved right. labs. Because right now, FDA does not approve e-liquid labs. Right. So the fact that they did that, I think, opened the door to, to let the world know, hey, we can come after you guys now. We don't have to wait you know, for deeming to necessarily become effective. There's other ways that we can come after you. So 
be, be on notice of that. So I think that's huge. It was a huge step by FDA. Um, please be aware of the things that you're saying, the claims you're making about your products. You know, do not have an FDA logo on your website. Or your bottle. <laughs> or, or, or on or your, your bottle. bottle. I yeah. mean, you know, even if you even if your lab was separately approved, you know, for, you know, some sort of making some sort of pharmaceutical or for some other area, you know, if you're making e-liquid, you know, FDA has not come out with GMPs yet. They don't right. approve uh, labs for e-liquid production. So you want to avoid implying uh, in any way that your product has been approved or certified by FDA. It, 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 what's really funny about that, one of the companies that got it, uh, that letter is Knoxville Vapor. And I know the guys that own it, they're great people. Uh, they're neighbors of mine over here. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So they don't actually make e-liquid, right? They buy e-liquid from various companies and they resell it in their stores. Now, one company out of Florida that makes their e-liquid does claim and has told a lot of the, you know, the, the brick and mortar stores out there that they have an FDA approved lab facility, which could be partially true. I mean, they could have a lab that's been approved for the FDA, but of course, obviously not for e-liquid manufacturing. It was probably approved for something else. And they're kind of using that as a marketing. And obviously, the shops that are selling it, they were probably using it as a marketing tool as well, too. I'm not putting, I'm not trying to take the blame away from Knoxville Vapor or any other person that's out there that's, that's been using that. Uh, however, I can see how it was misleading. To me, what I found surprising is that the FDA sent Knoxville Vapor the letter instead of sending the letter to the lab that was actually cl- making these claims and continues to make these claims on their website. So I'm a little bit concerned and a little bit disturbed about that is... Maybe is the FDA so ignorant or they haven't done enough research or they don't know this industry at all if they're sending somebody that doesn't even make e-liquid simply because they have that on their website? Or did you just do a quick Google search in the top four results and they just pick that and send them a letter, which, you know, that would be really surprised if that's the way that the FDA works. We're really screwed then. So, you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, how, do you, how, how well do you think that the FDA knows the level where the industry is now, and of course I'm talking about not big tobacco uh, electronic cigarettes or even big companies like Logic and Mystic, from our side of the industry, how well do you think that they know the industry, how it is and how it operates right now? That's a tough question. Um, you know, I'm in this industry, you know, working with companies and, and people, you know, almost 24-7, you know, and... I'm learning new stuff every day, and I, I hope that FDA is paying close attention to it. I'm afraid that they're not. Yeah. This is a very fast-evolving industry um, uh, and a community, and you know, unless they're paying very close attention, then I'm afraid that they don't probably know as much as they need to know. Now, that being said, I'm not surprised that your friends got the warning letter um, because what FDA is going to do is they're, they're always going to go after low-hanging fruit. You know, um, your guys are located here in, in Tennessee in the States, and they're the ones who are uh, selling products to the consumers. And so it was it's very easy for FDA to say, OK, well, that's who we're going to target. Right. You know, they could have gone after the, the manufacturer, but and that probably would have made more sense. But, you know, part of what FDA is trying to do here, I think, is send a message to the industry that, you know, even if you're not making this stuff, and if you're selling it to consumers, then, you know, we can come after you for doing or saying things that are inappropriate. Let me take a question from, from, from Twitter and just ter- ter- change a little bit here the uh, the direction. I got a question from Bruce uh, discussing the PACT Act and deeming on state tobacco taxation issues. Could the FDA continuum of risk have a tax leverage? Uh, is that something that, you, that you're aware of? Um, well, it, you know, it would, it would make 
a lot of sense for for ultimately, you know, if if these products are taxed, and I think as the industry grows and as the government sees how much money is in it, you know, it's just a matter of time before God the industry is taxed. Sure, um, it would make sense to to base taxes on how harmful the products are, mm-hmm. because you know the one of the one of the reasons they say uh, allegedly that they they tax cigarettes is because they're trying to prevent people from smoking, right? You make right. it more expensive right. and, right. and then people will likely to quit, et cetera. Um, and what we're seeing on the state level, and I'm not the state expert, I wait until sure. Kevin Skipper gets on, but um, you know, what we're seeing on the state level is a lot of these states are imposing or they're getting ready to impose taxes that are similar to the cigarette taxes, excise taxes. Right. Um, Again, but that doesn't make sense for e-cigarettes, which are less harmful, which are helping people quit smoking. Um, if part of the reason for your cigarette taxes was to get people to, to, to stop smoking. And so it would make more sense, in my opinion, ultimately, if there were if there was a tax scheme in place for them to tax products that are more harmful um, more than they tax products that are less sure. harmful. That sure. makes perfect sense to me, but... Um, I think we're very far away from that happening. Oh, yeah, we've got to be. And plus, more and more states are starting to implement these taxes. Uh, in fact, I got I got a hold of the Southern Legislative Conference of the Council of State Governments. This is a little newsletter that's sent to, to various states uh, on proposed taxation or, or where they would have to do on different items. And this particularly deals with uh, with electronic cigarettes. And... Um, uh, what what I'm just going to read one little sentence from inside that I found really really interesting and uh, basically what this is is just a newsletter that's been handed out to states on how to deal with e-cigarettes how to how to categorize them what to name them what the acronyms are and how to tax them and so forth and so forth but part of what they're saying is here is out here is and I'm reading qu- uh, re- uh, word for word with the impending depletion of M- MSA payouts on the horizon and a decline in the number of Americans who use tobacco products replacing this revenue could pose a challenge coupled mm-hmm. with Falling tobacco revenue, states already are struggling to keep pace with education and Medicaid growth while trying to address current and future transportation infrastructure and repairs, which no longer can rely on motor fuel revenue and the Highway Trust Fund as a steady source of funding. So here we go. We know, Here's another example that people are not smoking. And this has happened in the last two or three years, right? This is not something that, that these, these uh, you know, proponents of health and the American Lung Association, the American Cancer Association for the last 30 years have accomplished. The only thing that's accomplished that is the birth of the electronic cigarette. Right? And we have it plain and simple. They say it right there. The MSA is depleting because people are not smoking. Can that be used as a tool, even in a legal recourse, to show, hey, listen, you're saying that people are not quitting smoking. Here we go. This is another example of people are getting away from combustible tobacco. I think that's a great argument to, 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 to show, you know, without the typical way of showing that people quit by doing a, you know, a survey or a study, sure. that people are actually quitting. Um, you know, using that kind of data, I would love it to see if someone could somehow come up with some sort of a analytical model based on you know falling revenue streams from MSA and taxes to sort of maybe come up with uh, some sort of numbers to show how much the smoking rate has been affected by e-cigarettes. I mean, that would be really great if if someone out there was smart enough to do that. That that would be great to give to a data analytical survey and actually do a study on it. That might be funded by the industry and, and some of the big, big players to show out there. That would be great data to collect, in my opinion, because I think financially, and even if you've seen some states, some senators have been caught 
um, you know, they obviously didn't want to say it the way that they said it, but they have said that they're they don't ha- they're trying to fill their shortfall budgets, and their budgets have, have, have been shortfall because people are quitting smoking, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but if falling under that FDA regulation, if that if that is something that the FDA might implement, would that be able to be used, I guess, on a state level? I think that's something that's going to be determined, right? And it's going to be determined on the legislation of a state. I mean, if a state put, puts an excise tax now on e-cigs, and five years from now, I mean, for five years, you're going to be paying that excise tax. And then for five years from now, will that FDA ruling um, go back and, and give everybody pe- their, their money back that they've spent? I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's absurd. It's crazy. It, it, it frustrates me to no end, Azim. I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know, I, I, know. I wish I had answers for these I very know, good questions. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just venting a little bit here. Uh, all right. Uh, finally, um, uh, we still have a Zoom for a few minutes. Three four seven three zero eight eight three two nine, or tweet me at vaping greek hashtag smoke free radio. Uh, the last thing I want to say, uh, I want, I want you to a little bit touch on is, people are saying, uh, in this industry, I hear it a lot. Uh, by, by various e-liquor manufacturers or people in their stores. Well, even if the deeming regulations do come, we have two years. It's like I mean that's their thinking, right? So you know everybody, every, everybody's thinking like, how can we manipulate the system? Which is really stupid to me. I mean, I, I really get get angry when I hear of ways of people trying to manipulate. They think that the FDA is not going to take in consideration of you. Are you going to outsmart the FDA? That's impossible, right? That's not going to happen. But my first point. This two-year thing that people are talking, I think that they have two years, which is not necessarily true, right? There's things that are going to fall in place within 30 days and within 60 days of implementing these deeming regulations, correct? That's correct. The two years is specifically referring to the deadline for submitting that PMTA that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, two years would not be enough. If you if you are a smart company and you're and and you're thinking about what's going to happen down the road. You've already started working on PMTAs and, and trying to come up with a strategy for, for dealing with that. But because two years is frankly not enough time probably to gather the data and get the resources together um, to submit a PMTA. But that being said, the there are other requirements. There are going to be product registration and product disclosure, ingredient disclosure, testing requirements, testing for what are known as harmful, potentially harmful substances that are all going to kick in within 30 days to six months of the, the rule becoming effective. Yeah. And so, you know, you're going to be busy trying to you know, respond to all those requirements. You know, meanwhile, you're going to have this deadline coming up for PMTA. So it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening yeah. very quickly. So I encourage you to start trying yeah. to wrap your head around it. Yeah, just don't think that that two-year gap is going to to give you time to <laughs> to do what you need to do. Lastly, uh, obviously the non-nicotine issue, and, and this is another thing that I hear all the time. Well, you know, I'm just going to continue, and I'm not going to. I'm going to sell nicotine separately. I'm going to do, you know, again trying to find ways to manipulate the system. Even though the FDA has said that whether it has, I mean, they, obviously they can't control if it doesn't have nicotine, but the products that are used for that for vaporization could be deemed uh, based on their intent of use, right? And that's a very very vague explanation that intent to use clause that's in the FDA. Briefly tell us a little bit about no nicotine. Right. So the first thing to remember is that a tobacco product is defined very broadly. Not just I mean, the main part of it is anything that, that contains uh, nicotine derived from tobacco, but also the components and parts of that product. So a component of a tobacco product is itself a tobacco product, as convoluted as that may sound. Mm-hmm. And so that really gives FDA a lot of leeway to say, well, okay, well, 
if you're a device manufacturer and you don't make liquid, you can't really argue, well, you know, you're not a tobacco product because you don't have nicotine. Because FDA can say, well, your vaporizer device is going to be used um, with potentially liquid containing nicotine, and therefore it's a component of the product and is subject to regulation. Mm -hmm. So that's really that's how broad they can reach to to come out and come after vaporizers, devices, um, even potentially zero nicotine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because with the zero nicotine, you're right, absolutely, if it doesn't contain nicotine, it's not a tobacco product. But we might end up seeing a situation where everyone sells simply the liquid without the nicotine, you know, just a PG, BG flavor combination. And then you'll have separate people buying nicotine on the black market or directly from, you know, suppliers and adding nicotine to their own flavors if they want it. And then you create this whole black market of, 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 you know, illegal nicotine. And so... FDA could come after those zero nicotine products as somehow being, you know, falling under the mantra of components. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, they could, you know, come after it, – it, w- it would create this uh, ulterior black market, which would be terrible for the public health. So um, – and, and additionally, FDA could even come after the zero nicotine products as, as drugs, um, depending on the claims that are made. And even yeah. without claims, because of the PG itself and, and the flavors – being in there so yeah. it's not it's not a simple question it's not clear what it's they're going to do it's not but there's a lot of options i just don't want it to be something that people can fall back on and, and just relax and say well when that time comes i'm just going to sell like that a lot of people bring up the bong uh example you know how do head shops sell bongs you know when when you know weed is not legal or whatever which is fine but they're, they're missing the key point there where are you going to go get them in a head shop you know it's like how you know people forget that you know it's not about us that vape i think us that vape we're never going to have a problem vaping but how about as a smoker you know that's why we call them head shops how many people go into unless you use weed which i have nothing against it but how many people you know they're going to go into a head shop to buy you know a device and then you know get uh, you know non-flavored e-liquid and then go down the street and meet somebody get nicotine i mean tobacco harm reduction is not about that it's about availability and choices and helping smokers get off so i hate hearing that let me take a, qu- a brief question uh, uh azim 201 you're on the air with smoke free radio well, if you're going to hate hearing that, you shouldn't have taken my call. Hey, what's <laughs> um, up? It's Russ. Hey, what's up, Russ? That, that, was, the exact, that was the exact question, I, and, I, and it's just because I don't understand it is why I want to ask it. I, I don't understand how what Azim said about the hardware can actually happen, how, how it actually can be regulated, because we already have this, you know, in a different industry, obviously, happening with hardware. And, and the thing is, when... Usually when you do go to a head shop, the interesting thing is it's not that they say, you know, these are not for using with drugs. They don't say that. They actually say a lot of the time these products are specifically for use with tobacco. Now, nobody uses them for tobacco, but that's a little sign they put there. And yet they're selling these products that are specifically to be used with nicotine, with tobacco, yet there's no regulations on them at all. So why would all of us – I don't understand why – uh, a mechanical mod, for example, or, or or whatever, could possibly be labeled as something that would be regulated when we have the same thing happening now, and they're not. Yeah, um, that's a very good question. Well, technically, those uh, you know components and, and devices that are intended for tobacco are regulated. They are regulated as as components of tobacco products. 
um, as as you know, I guess they sort of broadly fall under the definition of of like a pipe pipe tobacco. Mm-hmm. Pipe tobacco would be a deemed product, right? So remember the the deeming regulation captures not just e-cigarettes; it'll capture all the unregulated products: hookah, shisha, pipe and pipe tobacco, cigars potentially, and so. What you're going to see happen once deeming becomes effective is FDA coming after those hardware, even the pipe hardware that are used for with tobacco leaf. Those are going to be regulated by FDA as well. Now, it doesn't mean that those, those uh, hardware pieces are going to be subject to all of the same requirements, but they will be subject to some requirements. And so to answer your question, you're right. There hasn't been regulation yet, but it's coming. There you go. Russ, you're not, we're not okay. going to be able to that get pipes sense. either. I didn't, know that was a, I didn't know that was a part of the uh, this new thing, but now I understand. Thank you for answering my question, sir. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for calling in, buddy. Cheers. All right, let me take one more question. Azim, I know you got to go. I just want to make sure that, that this gentleman doesn't have a question here. I think I just crashed the blog talk. Uh, that's just my luck. Oh, there we go. All right, hey, uh, Tom, do you have a question? Yeah, it's on the hardware. Uh, inside of the deeming, it says that they have not even studied the tax implications or not the, the financial implications of trying to regulate something that does not have nicotine in it. So when you were saying that a component of a tobacco product could be uh, under the regulations, that's premised upon it being a tobacco product. And elsewhere in the deeming regulations, it says that they are not aware of any tobacco products that do not contain nicotine. So if you're selling the liquid in, in a bubble pack along with the hardware, I think you can make a case that way. But if you're just selling a simple mod or an RDA or whatever, I, I think the FDA has pretty clearly said that that's out of scope. Azim? Well, they, they are going to have their work cut out for them. They're going to try to come after these mods. I just want to be clear. It's, yeah. e, e, these uh, devices and mods and, and hardware um, – I'm just trying to get get you to understand that they they could assert this broad authority by calling them tobacco and uh, by components of tobacco. But, you know, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of questions. I agree. But Jim brings up a good point in the chat. And he says that, you know, we're, we're not deemed yet. Once we're deemed a tobacco, that opens up the door for a lot of things. I mean, it opens up the doors for flavors. It opens up the marketing. After it's deemed a tobacco, they can obviously go back and do anything that they want to after that. Is that right, Azim? That's right. And so, so that's that's kind of what I really want to focus on before I yeah, get off tonight. Sure. Deeming is the beginning. Right. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a very long process. What I think will ultimately happen is that probably by the end of this year, we'll see a rule come from FDA that will deem e-cigarettes with nicotine and their components to be regulated tobacco products. We may not see specific rules on the how they're going to come after the mods or the hardware, or we, you know, if we're lucky, we may not, we'll, we'll see them delay pre-market, uh, the pre-market authorization. But if they do, what, what all they're doing is delaying it. So what they're saying is we're going to deem these to be tobacco. And as we develop more data, as we get more data from these studies that we're doing, from these comments that were that were submitted, we're going to develop specific regulations for the mods. We're going to come up with a legal basis for coming after the hardware, or, or the zero nicotine, or you know the pre-market right. requirements for right. different right. types of products on the continuum. It's the beginning of the process. It's not the end. Yeah. So, I just want to make sure that's clear. These are all very good questions. 
I'm not answering all of them very well because they're, they are tough questions. I don't have the answers. Right. But it's the beginning of the process. And once the, that, that commenter is exactly right, once we're deemed, then they will have the legal authority to, to create specific regulations and requirements in, in all these areas. Absolutely. And you're going to talk more about this during our webinar that you're giving, you and your firm is giving. Uh, and, and I just want to put this out there because I did get to see a Zim in China, and, and it, there's other countries out there that are starting the, this regulatory process for for electronic cigarettes. China being one of them, and uh, and your your office has uh, you know, your your firm has an office in China as well too. But what we're seeing there is that there's a lot of countries that are kind of looking to the FDA as well too, right? I mean, they're kind of trying to see what the FDA stance is going to be, and they're going to copy that. I mean, it just makes sense. It's the easiest thing to do, obviously. I don't know why anybody would look to us for any kind of regulation, but uh, there is, there's a lot of countries out there that are looking at that. So it's extremely vital that we get it right here in the, with the FDA. So um, you're going to do a webinar uh, May the 15th. Talk a little bit about that webinar, what exactly you're going to be t- talking about, who should participate, and also if people want to get in touch with you, whether we have corporations, e-liquid manufacturers, anybody that needs legal guidance, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. So yeah, that's right, on May 15th. Um, there's a free webinar, completely free. It's at 12 noon Eastern time. Um, you can you can find the link, I think, probably on my Twitter account at eSig Attorney uh, or on our website, khlaw.com. Um, it's going to be a hour-long webinar where I'm going to talk about the deeming regulation in more detail, provide some more information on the history of how we got here and what the rule says, and provide some alternative frameworks for FDA um, to to potentially use in lieu of what in, in lieu of the one size fits all approach. You know, I, yeah. I know we've talked about right. some of those right. today, such as the grandfather date and the continuum of risk. But I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about that. So I think it would, if you're interested, um, you know, uh, anyone can can join companies, vapors, uh, anyone who wants to learn more about the law is welcome to join. And again, if you if you're if you're looking for legal advice on this on these issues, there's a lot of evolving issues. I get questions every day about uh, you know some of the new state law issues that are happening, um, the FDA preparing comments, um, meeting with FDA. Uh, you should absolutely feel free to contact me. Um, my uh, email is my last name Chowdhury C H O W D H U R Y at khlaw.com. Uh, I have seen Azim in some of these presentations and some of these eSig intelligence conference that I attend, and I can tell you that the man knows his stuff. And it's always enlightening. Azim, thank you so much for joining us here on Smoke Free Radio. Uh, I wish I could say that was a pleasant. It always is unpleasant when I'm talking to you <laughs> when it comes to the FDA regulations, but I certainly yeah. enjoy <laughs> hearing you talk, and, 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 uh, and I appreciate all the guidance and the, the advice that you have given me over the years. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Azim. Bye-bye. There he goes, everybody. Azim with the... Uh, Keller and Heckman Law Firm. It's a really brilliant guy. Really, really enjoyed getting to know him over the past couple of years. And it's somebody that, even though he doesn't vape, uh, you know, he has seen it within his family and his friends. And he's really passionate about it as well, too, which I think is extremely important for people that are in this industry, especially from a legal standpoint, to be able to get those points across with the regulators. So, khlaw.com, if you want to get more information on this webinar, the 15th of May, it is an hour long. I highly suggest, it's free for everybody. I highly suggest that everybody participates. Let me go ahead and bring now my second guest. He's been waiting patiently over there uh, on Skype, Mr. Kevin Skipper from the Vista Vapor Industry, Vaping Industry Strategic Truth Alliance. Kevin, what's up? Hey, what's going on, Adrian? Uh, I don't know. You're as depressed as I am? Because every time I talk to Azim, I get depressed afterwards. Um, 
Yeah, I, it's it's kind of depressing to listen to all the things that are going on with the federal government and the FDA regulations. But I mean, I guess like you always say, every time we talk, I'm a perpetual optimist. So yeah. I think that at some point in the next um, couple of years, we'll be at a position in our industry where we can get some Congress people and senators on board at the federal level and really just um, make what the FDA is doing hopefully um, non-meaningful. I can say, you know, I mean, I wish, I wish I was optimistic. I, I wish I was. I just, I just can't, because I'm seeing it from the CTP standpoint. I'm seeing it from the center of tobacco products and how they're trying to, you know, squeeze this cylinder into this square of the CTP, and and we, we are not a tobacco product and everything that is out there right now that is written right there uh, on the law on paper right now is written for combustible tobacco nothing's on there for electronic cigarettes so unless we see some kind of a miracle change in the fda to give this a you know a modified risk category product for electronic cigarettes we're fucked i mean i yeah. it's, 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 there's no way that i can sit there i can't see how anybody that's in this industry can sit back and say you know what? I'm ready for the FDA. Bring it on. I'm ready. I got an ISO lab. I got this. I got that. I'm ready for the I can't understand how anybody would do that. Well, they can, but my point is not the FDA at all. My point is that if the, the, the FDA serves at the pleasure of the, the Congress and the federal government. So what we need to do is we need to get congressmen and, and senators to write a law that classifies electronic cigarettes and nicotine delivery devices and e-liquid as a completely separate classification from tobacco products. I tried in Tennessee. It failed again this year. This is two years yeah, in a row. We need to, we need to hit the <laughs> federal government. I know. We need to hit the federal government, though. And I, I think know. probably within the next couple of years we'll be there, hopefully before, hopefully, that's a key word, before the FDA's deeming regulations right, right. get too far, you know. Screw us too much, I guess I could say. The reason why I wanted you to come on today, and and I kind of I contacted you last moment, but I wanted to take it from the federal to the state, and I wanted to make that transition because we, we you know, we see in the bigger picture of the FDA, it's still you know maybe a while out, it's it's approaching closely, but we shouldn't lose our focus on what's happening state by state because if every state continues to do what Indiana, what Kentucky, and what uh, Pennsylvania, and what other, you know what other states are doing, if this continues, the least of our worries should be the FDA because the exactly. state the states are already going to choke the industry already, so it doesn't really make a difference what the FDA. It's actually going to make the, the FDA's job much easier when there's no e-cig industry involved, and we've seen it state by state that it's happening right now. So, you know, it's the importance of having representation within the state, within the industry. Uh, and w- when when you decided to launch Vista last year, I, I thought it was a brilliant plan. I, I never expected that we will be three states deep in after a year. I mean, it, to me, it's it's uh, very, very disheartening and, ve- and very, very frustrating. Yeah, absolutely is. And, and well, I, I just thankfully, the Florida session, I don't know about thankfully, but the uh, House of Representatives closed the session three days early. I think they were pissed off or something with the Senate here in Florida. So that means anything that we had pending, our, our lobbyists here in Florida, this is breaking news, by the way, we haven't released this yet, but they anything that was pending as far as the electronic cigarettes, which there were two nasty bills that could have hurt us. One was in a committee and the other one was um, in the House, I believe, and they're gone. So our lobbyists really did an effective job of same, um, handling same, things this session. Same thing here in Tennessee. And uh, here we got an 18 minor band plus and, and a childproof cap law, and that's pretty much it. And I truly believe it's because of Vista and because of the lobbyists that we have in place and the involvement of the vape shop owners uh, that have supported this effort more in Tennessee than in Florida. But in Florida now we're seeing that that's, that's, that's picking up some, some, some grounds in Georgia Absolutely. as well, too. But because I think, of the SFA model that right. um, really started, I think Oklahoma has something that they had similar. And then sure. um, you, you kind of got on board with the TSFA, and that model took off in Florida and Georgia. 
and we're bringing them on board. And I think you can clearly see by the successes we've had in these states. I don't want to you know brag too much, but sure. in the last year, I think we've done a really effective job of getting a proactive approach in and, these states and it's been it then it shows and i truly believe it i mean even in utah with aaron frazier doing so much work Absolutely. over there he's changed it around now with the smoke free association oval it's funny to talk about oklahoma because when i was in new york at the ecc the uh the president of oval uh, we had a really nice discussion for about 45 minutes because they want to switch that model from the oval to a smoke free association because they want to be able to do more because i mean ultimately our goal is to have a lobbyist in the state but we do so much more it's not mm-hmm. just that i mean you're talking about education media representation we're doing studies down here in Tennessee, you know, through uh, Dr. Fasalinos. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to educate our legislators in the off season. We're trying to get in newspapers. We're trying to do op-ed. We're trying to do a lot of stuff through a smoke free association, and also support SFADA and support CASA and support militia and support Greg with the FDA. All through one state association, I think it's a, it's a great working model. But you know, coming back, you know, I'm gonna give you a, an example right now. What's happening in in um, in Montgomery County? Right, Montgomery County is is a state that's now. Uh, it, that's, uh, this is up in Baltimore. They're trying to introduce a bill that's going to tax um, um, at wholesale at thirty percent excise tax. All right, and I'm going to play this clip here, and I'm going to stop it in between because there's so much shit wrong with this clip from our side and their side. All in a minute and forty two minutes. Uh, in a minute and forty two seconds, Kevin, it's going to blow your mind. Okay, so all here right. we go. Listen to this. Vape Inc. in Rockville. It's one of a growing number of shops in Montgomery County that sell everything needed for vaping. Say if you're getting off of smoking and you say you go to like blue electronic cigarettes, then, you know, you'll probably pay $20 for that first setup. You're more than likely not going to like it. So then you'll go to a vape shop and probably end up buying something like this, like a box mod with a, with a rebuildable atomizer on top. That will cost about $240. But- All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is a vape shop owner on camera, Kevin, that's saying... That you're going to go to the store and you're going to buy a $20 blue kit and you're not going to be satisfied and you can come to the vape shop. Right there is the greatest reason to keep blue around, right? <laughs> we, we don't want blue to go away. If somebody bought a $20 blue kit and it didn't work and it comes into your vape shop, you should be sending postcards to blue. You should be thanking them for sending you customers, right? We want these inferior products to be on the market because those are the products that might trigger something in somebody's mind that says, oh, shit, you know, vaping might work. Let me go discover something else because this is not really cutting it. Right, and the two hundred and forty dollars. Oh my fucking god! Are you kidding me? You kidding me? This is so you're gonna go from a blue, and they're gonna give you a box mod with an RDA on it, right? This is the solution, and drop two hundred and forty bucks. How many people are you gonna get to quit smoking by giving them a box mod with an RDA and charging them two hundred and forty bucks? It gets worse. I I wish it was better. (laughs) I wish it was better, but uh, but here we go. But at another seventy-two dollars in Montgomery County, if the council passes a tax on e-cigarettes and vape. Paraphernalia. The bill is intended to add a 30 uh, 30% excise tax on the distributors. Montgomery. So excise tax, and Pamela Gorman talked a little bit about this, Kevin. Uh, excise tax should be called extra tax. Uh, excise tax is just a way of saying, hey, we don't have any money. We're just going to put an excise tax on this product simply because it looks like it's smoking. And we're going to take some money to 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 fill our, our, our budget shortfall, right? Oh, yeah, i got a plan to talk about that in just a few minutes. So, <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Let me finish this up then. Connie doesn't know exactly how much revenue the new tax will raise, but they believe it will be in the millions and it will be used as part of the general fund to pay for county services. What we generally consider vice taxes, like this one. Uh, a... Hold on. Did he just say vice taxes? 
He did. This is a vice tax? How is this fucking person elected? How is this person allowed to hold public office? For I mean, seriously. And they have him on TV saying this. And there's not an uproar in this county, in this in, in Montgomery County. There's not an uproar to put this guy on a pitchfork. It gets yes, better. It's not a trust fund approach, but they generally support our public health efforts. Oh, it's not a trust fund approach, but they ger- that's generally where the money goes. We're not going to tell you exactly where the money goes, but it's generally used. What percentage of that is used? I guarantee you it's under 5%. I, I guarantee you. Right, I call bullshit. It's total bullshit. <laughs> it's and this is this is something that is going on right now without any outrage at all. I mean, we're seeing the call to action that Casal has put up there. I will have the link in the description as well below. I'll put it in the chat if you want to read a little bit more about it. But to me, right? To me, this is another perfect example. of This is the stuff that the, the vapors and the industry should be taking and and going to the media and saying, "Listen to what this guy just said. I quit smoking. I quit. I finally quit combustible tobacco. I'm going to live longer." And he's calling me a vice and an excise and all the same bullshit that everybody else is being tagged on to justify an improper tax. It's got if more. If passed, the tax will go into effect July 1st. Would a tax affect the amount you smoke? Yeah, in a way. In a way, yeah. If you What do you mean, yeah? What do you, what do you mean, yeah? Of course it's going to... First of all, this is the first thing that I would say, Kevin, if they told me this this question. I, I don't smoke. I mean, the guy clearly asked him, would it affect the, the amount that you smoke? And right. instead of the first thing coming out of this guy's mouth would be, uh, I don't smoke, sir. I don't know what gave you that impression, but I'm not smoking. Second of all, obviously, if it's going to become more expensive than me that to, to, to save my life than it is killing my life with with tobacco cigarettes, you know, people are not going to transition to this product. This is the way that you should be answering. If you can't answer like that and you're a vape shop owner, stay off TV. Let me finish it Think up about here. it that way. In vape shops, a $12 bottle of flavored liquid called juice could cost more than $15.5 because of the tax which shops say could drive away business. Really, the customers can still get the juice untaxed. They don't have to buy it in Maryland. You can buy juice extremely cheap online. And starting this June, Montgomery County is banning the use of e-cigarettes and vaping in public places where smoking tobacco is prohibited. Right. Go ahead and tell them they can get it online cheap. There you go. Call it juice. I mean, to me, just one after the other. This is just a minute 40 in one county, Kevin, that makes me want to pull the hair off my head, man. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Montgomery County, Maryland before, but I used to live a county over from there, and it's all upper middle class or upper class um, people that live and work in Washington, D.C. So um, I, I, I'm not going to say what the first thought that just came to my mind was, <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I don't think that it's um, – hopefully this model doesn't catch on. And what people don't realize is if you don't fight like stuff like this, even if you live in a surrounding county or even, even northern Virginia, you should be attending this meeting and, and opposing this vehemently because – um, when when it passes one place, it's going to spread. And we're seeing that in Florida, and we're seeing that in cities all across the country. It's so, it's, it's unfortunate you that can't I can't <laughs> say it's not going to happen to me. No, you can't. It's going to happen to you. Sooner or later, it is going to happen to you. And even if you have in place uh, positioning like we had here, we you know my, my representative here told me that there was tax talk this year about electronic cigarettes. It got squashed pretty quickly. There was talk about drug paraphernalia. It got squashed pretty quickly. But I think that has to do a lot with us being already involved in the process, and we have a lobbyist there as well, too. So, you know, even though, you know, we know next year they're probably going to come with a tax bill here in Tennessee, but we're going to be ready. Yeah, we're in a position right now where we can work during the off session to help influence some of that. We're we're not going to be caught off guard, hopefully. Let me give you another example here of what's going on in Pennsylvania. And this is uh, this is close to me because I have a lot of friends up there that have stores. And I know they're working really hard to try to get organized and get a lobby representative 
representation there as well, too. Uh, this, of course, uh, you know, West York, PA, and, of course, Governor Tom Wolf. This the, this guy's a, a douchebag. He's, he's brought on so many tax proposals. They have been squashed in the past. I have to say that. Uh, but this is a little news clip from over there, and I'll put that call to action in as well. In to the governor's proposed budget, they want to snuff out a plan to hike taxes on e-cigarettes. Businesses fear consumers will shop elsewhere or online. Stephen Fisher reports from York County. The vaping business has been booming. Just shy of 300 flavors on every given day, and that's constantly changing. But the governor's tax plan is making the business's future cloudy in Pennsylvania. My jaw kind of dropped with the with the 40 percent. J.R. Russell owns one step above a vape shop in West York. He says the proposed 40 percent increase on e-cigarettes burns his bottom line. These are going for 30 bucks. I think it's going to drive away business. Um, I think it's going to stop a lot of people from able to uh, to afford what we're doing. He did the math and doesn't like the final numbers. It's a higher tax, so if somebody's paying $20 for something, it's going to go to $28 per bottle. His doors have been open for two years. He has loyal customers, but says at the end of the day, money talks. Definitely worried about that. and People are definitely going to shop more online for that, which is going to put a significant hit on us. 40 percent on this stuff. I don't like that. And Lori Ashman of Wellsville is not alone. In fact, other customers say they'll shop out of state or online for vaping products to save a few bucks. Online, out of state, wherever I'd have to. That's just, that's an increase It's probably a lot of us won't be able to afford. Maryland's only 25 miles away. I can be in Maryland in less than 25 minutes. Yeah, I definitely would. And I would order online. A business dripping with potential now threatened by a tax increase. And again, another prime example, uh, they're getting organized over there in PA. I know Chris Hughes and, and the rest of the group, the group over there have, have done a great job trying to get organized and get a lobby representation through SFADA. However, think, uh, Stefan just said that they uh, have their lobbyists deployed already. I didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 I've been assured by Chris Hughes that this will not pass. That's he's 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 made his promise. It was it was really funny today because what happened is Aspire, uh, uh, the company Aspire, eGate from China. I, I, I'm assuming they thought that this had already passed. So what Aspire thought about doing this is uh, their way of of of, of uh, uh, helping the vaping community. They announced that any product that you buy off their website, if you are from the PA, they'll give you 40% off. So they, to combat the 40% tax, which was it was thoughtful of them, but I guess they don't understand that that has not been really implemented. So basically, they're driving all the consumers from PA not to shop at brick and mortar stores right. and to go to the Aspire website to buy the stuff for 40% off, which is putting a hurting on the vendors when they're trying to raise money for a lobbyist to defeat the bill. So I sent an email to Alan and 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 the guys there at Aspire trying to tell him, hey. Listen, this is not implemented yet. This is not really, you know, helping anybody by doing that. But um, well, it, I mean, if they want to do something like that, why don't they take forty percent of their um, sales from Pennsylvania and donate it to it's, well, obvious ones? It's so hard. It's so hard to do that, Kevin. It's hard. It's hard for it's it's hard for the Chinese to just take a lump of money like that if they don't see immediate results. They just don't understand this concept. Yeah. Of you know, we have to wait two, three, four months and see how that's going to work out and how it's going to play out. They just don't get it. Yeah. So I don't so, know. So I mean, if they think they're going to be able to drive them to Maryland as well, Maryland's having their own issues. So I think that's what I mean, one problem too with with uh, vapors who are uninformed about what's happening in the climate um, nationally in each state. You're not going to be able to just drive to Maryland if Maryland's also having their own issues and they implement a tax. Yeah. So it's again, it's spreading and it's like cancer, and it's not going to stop until we stop it. Yeah. 
Uh, Jim, I just saw, I, I don't know when you posted those questions on Twitter, but they just came across my feed after I had gotten a zine. But I think he addressed most of your, the questions that you had. Uh, and I see somebody saying I shouldn't be vaping in the microphone. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, what are you going to do? Um, so, so, Kevin, it, I, again, I don't want to go on a rant here. I don't, I'm, but you're seeing this more and more on a state-to-state level. And I guess the point I'm trying to make here is whether you get involved with Vista or you get involved with Fada or get involved with anybody, just do something. For crying out loud, do something. We're getting killed in, in various states right now that, I don't know, I, sometimes I feel like we're hurting ourselves. And, and it's, it's point evident. Indiana is a prime example that we have to do something, no matter what it is, get organized. In Arkansas. They got yeah. pretty hard on short notice yeah. as well. One of the things I was going to talk about um, since you brought it up was the um, using electronic cigarettes and nicotine dispensing devices and you put in the whole category as a way to raise money for declining revenues. Mm-hmm. And we, I posted this on my Facebook page um, sometime this week. We ha- I had an email. I think you did as well. You were copied on it from Jamie, who's one of the lobbyists for Vista in Florida. Mm-hmm. And it was from the Southern Legislative Conference of the Council of State Governments. And this is yeah. what all the southern states' legislatures read. This It's like they're... Um, Vape News Magazine, for instance. Right, so right, they read right. this and they get this and they look at this. And I posted probably one of the most relevant quotes from the entire thing, and I won't read the whole thing. Um, it's talking about depletion of MSA payouts right. and f- falling tobacco revenues. States are struggling to keep pace sure. with education and Medicaid growth, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It says, the legislative approach to taxing the consumables of e-cigarettes closely parallels to that of an excise tax on, t- tax on tobacco and motor fuel, which applies only to the users of the product without increasing taxes across the board. So what they're essentially saying is, we're going to penalize vapors for living smoke-free lives and take the money that we're going to collect from that and add it to what they quote-unquote call a revenue stream for the general fund, which is absolute bullshit. And, and what we're seeing in some states as well is Altria jumping in as well now. And we're seeing where, you know, to introduce a new tax, you have to take away a tax. And there's some negotiating going, going in the background between Altria and RJR to change the weight per pound on the tobacco tax bracket. So, you know, there's a good good example of why, you know, well, we're gonna, we lowered the tax here on this smokeless tobacco, whatever the, the weight per pound in their, in their smokeless tobacco is. But we have to raise it here on electronic cigarettes to be able to make up the difference. And that way they can justify. Because in a lot of states I've heard where they say, well, we can't introduce a new tax unless we're going to take away one tax. And, um, and, and if Altria is in the background doing that and negotiating their weight per pound on their smokeless tobacco, there you go. There's another way of we getting screwed as an industry. So, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's unfounded to me that, that at this stage of the game and how big the industry is, we're not better organized. I, I, I still think that we're really, really fragmented. And it shows it shows by some of these these laws that just make no sense at all, and they're passing left and right with you know virtually no opposition. And, and you know, you get a couple hundred vapors to show up at the Capitol, and that's a big thing. It's a huge thing, and I want to thank all the people that take their time. But in my opinion, that 200 vapors should have been 20,000 vapors. Because I know in the state of Indiana we have 20,000 vapors. When you have a bill that threatens your industry as much as that one did, you, you know, you, you'd expect to, to be, you know, a, a Baltimore riot going outside. I mean, that's how I would feel if they were trying to take away my vape. Right. Well, you, you I mean, you, it, you think that they would all want to show up and protect something that's helped them, you know, get off of combustible yeah. tobacco. However, I think roughly 50 to 60 percent of uh, adults eligible to vote aren't even registered to vote. So if we can't get people to vote for something as important as who's going to represent you in Congress or who's going to be the president of the United States who sets policies that make or break what our country is like for the next 10 or 20 years. I, I don't have high expectations of yeah. the amount of participation we're going to get from vapors. I just, I mean, I think, of course, I advocate that every, like, we need to have 80 to 90% of vapors registered to vote. Even if they're single-issue voters, they should be voting on 
um, voting in or voting out those who support or oppose uh, vaping legislation, even if they don't give a shit about anything else that happens in the government, because this directly is going to affect their life and their pocketbook. So. I, I totally agree. And, I, and I've said, you don't have to be political. You don't have to be Democrat or, or Republican, but you should register. And if, if vaping is so close to your heart, whether you're in the business or you're a consumer, uh, that should be the one issue that you should take up on, especially if you're in the business. If this is your livelihood, how in the hell are you not registered to vote? I mean, how, <laughs> how do you not know who your representative is, where you have your shops or your, or your manufacturing facility? It's, uh, it's, it should be just that should be part of your business plan. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're gonna absolutely. open up a shop here. Uh, who's our representative here? Who's our city council? Let's go meet with him. Let's tell him what we're doing. Let's set up a plan uh, in case we do have these these the, these bills that come up and be able to. I see comments in the chat. You know, do a cloud competition. People are gonna show up. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I guess that that side. But I don't think it's so much about the clouds and the giveaways and all that. I think that's a small portion of the community is just really really loud and we see it all the time. Uh, I'm, it's uh, to me, it's still a lack of brick and mortars reaching to their consumer and letting them know exactly what it is. They don't want to scare their, their their customers. They don't want to worry them. They don't want to tell them that they can go online and buy product. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And and you know, people might say that that you know that um, I'm wrong, but I have heard shops saying that. I've heard have heard vendors saying, well, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want my customers to know that they can go on fast tech and get it cheaper or they can go online and get 120 meals for, you know, 30, 30 bucks. So, uh, you know, they don't want to tell them exactly what the status of the community is. And uh, it's unfortunate. It's an, if that's if that's your business thinking and that's how you operate your business, well, you know, you, you got issues. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, I do think that we are making progress in the States, though. I mean, uh, it's, it's it's a lot slower than I had hoped for or anticipated, but we are making progress. Yeah. Um, I think some of these states that got shell-shocked this legislative session um, are waking up and hopefully will be much stronger in the, in the coming months. And, and hopefully some of the states that are not doing anything yet or not organized yet will use those examples to motivate them to get involved and do something. I, I and the, speaking of advocacy, I mean that's one of the reasons why I I've always supported the VCC and what you're doing with that with that convention circuit, circuit because you do take the time whether it's effective or not. I think it's effective in, in a small scale and it could be bigger, but I think that at every VCC that you've done, you've spent a great portion not only of funds but time and allocated time for advocacy. And it, more meets should take that example. More meets should spend that time on advocacy because it's a great opportunity to reach a lot of vapors quickly and in one place, and it doesn't have happen very often yeah i get a lot of questions from people that we had events in, in certain places and they want us to come back are you coming back here this year and i you know the whole goal behind the circuit aspect of it was to go to different places and expose local markets and you know places where people can have access from three to four hour drive to bigger cities and bring to them what is vaping in the vape community and the products that are available for people to get off of um, tobacco cigarettes and stuff like that so um, my goal is, I mean, except for Florida in February, which because it's probably the, one of the best weather climates and I live here, um, that's a no-brainer. But for the other two or three or four events that I'm going to be able to pull off per year, they're going to be in places where we've, where there's never been a major convention before. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea behind it, starting it, was um, to spread the word about vaping and advocacy and get people involved and, and, can, and transfer people over from combustible tobacco cigarettes. Which is another reason why after the first Tampa event that I'm not charging any door admission fees ever again for a VCC event. If, if, if a smoker was looking at the event and considering 10 or $20 for an entry for something they don't even know about yet and that turns them away from coming through the doors, then I'm not going to take that risk. So they're free to the public over 18. I would like to see some of the some of the events as they're getting bigger and bigger. There's some really big events uh, across the United States now. I mean, hell, there's one every other weekend. I'd like to see some of those events 
take portion of those funds and fund a lobbyist. I think that would make absolute sense because the people that are paying for those tables and those booths are generally e-liquid manufacturers that ship to all states. Right? right. So it would make sense for the organizer of a meet to say, okay, what's going on in Indiana right now? All you guys are coming in here. You sell product. Let's all put, you know, $500 from the booth fee and let's fund a lobbyist in Indiana. So you can continue to sell your products into that state. Uh, I've suggested that to a couple of people that do these meets. And, uh, you know, it's crickets. You know, it's like I'm, you know. I'm yeah, well, about. I've thought about, I mean, I, I do spend money from BCC for monies that I collect from sponsors and vendors. I'm a, a member of all the major advocacy groups and um, TSFA and FSFA. Um, so I, I spend a portion of my budget on right. um, advocacy. But right. I had thought about actually maybe taking a percentage of the booth and sponsorship fees and uh, uh, like reducing the price or donating it to advocacy groups or lobbyist groups if the person who is signing up is a member of a major organization. So for instance, if a company in um, Arizona is coming to a BCC event and they can say, hey, I'm a member of Vista or, or you know, I donated this much to CASA, then I would say, okay, you get 10% off your fee no matter which yeah, level you choose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of give them some incentive to join and contribute and do more. Um, if they are a national e-liquid company like you suggested, then um, they need to be spending money in every state. That's just the fact. And if the only one that's done that national, well, two of them, National e-liquid companies, Moon Mountain, obviously, is heavily involved in Florida and with Vista. And Space Jam, within the last six weeks, joined Vista as well. Um, and, th- and they knew that they, that it wasn't going to be enough. Their their membership fee wasn't going to be enough to get a lobbyist in California. But they said, you know, use it however best it can help you. Yeah. And I thought that was incredible. So, Well, uh, next VCC uh, is in Pittsburgh, right? Yep, Pittsburgh, June 13th and 14th at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. Um, got a huge hall, 482,000 square feet, which is about three times the size of the, the convention hall for Tampa. Done a completely different layout design for this one. There's going to be no wall booths. There's going to be no um, aisles with people sandwiched in between other vendors. It's going to be all islands. So no matter where you're at, you're going to have a corner booth, an end cap, or an island. Um, so I think it'll be much better for the, the vendors. They'll have access to two aisles no matter where they're at, um, and it'll be much better for traffic flow. And um, it's going, you know, it's going pretty well. Planning is going well. Good. Well, I look forward to it. I will be there for sure, I think, uh, depending on my travel schedule. But I think I will be there for sure, and I'm looking forward to another good event. And I'm looking forward to taking your money in poker one more time. Oh, I've got us a room reserved already. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the first caveats I have at the hotel. I think that the industry should come together and sponsor me to go to the WSOP. I will wear I will wear your company's logo on your shirt. If you sponsor me to go to the WSOP, I think I have a great chance of making it. And I don't know about the final table, but I, I definitely have a good chance of making it into the money. I'm a good poker How many player. How register for the main event? Um, about 10,000. It doesn't make any difference. There yeah, might be ten thousand. The there'll be there'll be ten. The there'll be ten thousand and a Greek. Can you imagine if I did make the final table, and we had like mm-hmm. thousands of vapors in the stands? You know, I would fly in all these people, and we'd be fucking vaping in the casino during the final table. That'd be fucking great. That'd be incredible. Yeah, I'd put over there Kevin Skipper on, on my the, hat. on the final table televised on ESPN. <laughs> you can just wear hashtag vaping save my life. That'd be great. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, I'm just just saying. Anybody out there wants to sponsor me? Uh, WSOP. It's uh, it's it's coming up. So, all right, Kevin. Anything else that you want to get in before I let you go? Um, nope. That's it. I appreciate you having me on, and um, we'll keep working. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yes, Say sir. hi to Olga and everybody else down there in Florida. I will, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. There he goes, everybody. Kevin Skipper with Vista, vistatruth.org, and vapingcc.com. little programming note. I will not be here next week. I will be traveling to Chicago to attend the SFADA conference 
with the much-anticipated Mitch Zeller presentation. Mitch Zeller is the guest speaker at Svara. I'm going to go ahead right now and go on the record and say that I'm pretty sure that his speech will follow what, what happened at, at the Dinero conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Vegas. Uh, and uh, and as, as much as I, I would love to see, you know, a really open uh, Q&A session where he's going to be able, he's great at dodging questions. He is fantastic at that. That's why they have him there. That's why they, that's why he's Mitch Zeller. Uh, but I'm 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 looking forward uh, to to the event and to the other speakers that are going to be there and of course hanging out with uh, a lot of the advocates and a lot of the industry that's going to be there. Leaving uh, uh, Sfada, Chicago on Wednesday, I am traveling to JFK to meet up with Phil Busardo. We're heading to London for the Vape Jam UK. Much excited about that as well. First time in London as a vapor. Uh, I get to meet a lot of these people that I have known online over the last three or four years, including David Dorn, maybe I get you 69, Reggie, a couple of the hosts from Vapor Trails TV, and all the other vapors that I have kind of interacted via the interwebs. Um, that's going to be happening May 8th and 9th in London, Vape Jam UK. Uh, so I will not be here next week, but I will be back the week after that with another episode of Smoke Free Radio. I'm going to leave you with this thought. It is urgent. It is urgent urgent that you understand what is going on in the industry if you are an e-liquid manufacturer if you're a distributor if you're a vendor if you're an employee at a vape shop or if you're just a consumer that's passionate about this uh, this industry it is urgent that you understand exactly what is happening in your local municipality your city your state and even at your federal government don't try to manipulate the system try to fix this broken system E-cigs are a lifesaver. Don't you ever forget that. You can help millions of lives in the future. Have a wonderful evening. I will see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.